Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, how's it going today? It's the Big Time Talker Podcast, live from Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen. Our number, 516-418-5635. That's 516-418-5635 if you'd like to be a part of the show. Brought to you in part by our friends at Speaker Match, the United States' largest online speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or a speaker, check out speakermatch.com and uh, find out about the new world of virtual speaking since Lots of speaking events have been canceled. Lots of events overall have been canceled around the world. And, and that's sort of the topic of our conversation today with my old buddy, Michael Craig Enoch. Mike escaped from China, uh, if you will, just in time. He's uh, an international businessman, veteran entertainment industry executive, and uh, has overseen major venues in Las Vegas, Atlanta, as well as Shanghai and Macau in China. And he was in China on business in January of this year. And as my understanding was on board one of the last flights out of the country where they halted travel uh, to the U.S. And uh, Michael was actually one of the very first people to sound the alarm to me personally regarding COVID-19 and how the situation was getting worse uh, rapidly in Wuhan and across China. And this was several weeks before it was really taken seriously here in the United States. Now, he still does a lot of business uh, long distance with China, unable to get back into the country. But I know he talks to lots of folks there, so I thought he could give us some interesting insight. Michael Enoch joins us from a park somewhere in the West Virginia, Ohio area, out uh, social distancing. Hey, Michael, how you doing, buddy? Good morning from wild, wonderful West Virginia. I, I am at the city park uh, next to the Gold Star Family's uh, monument by the lake, and uh, not a lot of people around, but they're all social distancing. And, you know, sometimes you just got to get out of the house. So you were the very first person that I talked to that said, you know, this could really be a thing in the United States. And, and I remember getting a phone call from you. I think it was, in the you know, late January, early February. And you said, look, I was on one of the last flights out of China. Tell folks who are listening what it is exactly – you do, and what takes you to China on a regular basis? Well, I uh, I used to work for AEG there from Los Angeles, and I ran the Mercedes-Benz Arena. I was the general manager there, and that is the, our equivalent to Madison Square Garden or the Staples Center, uh, where they do almost 200 events a year, concerts, uh, sporting events, etc. Uh, did that for three years and then opened the new arena in Macau, China, which is sort of Chinese Vegas. And uh, when it was opened, I came back to the United States and worked uh, for them in Atlanta, opening a new building then. Uh, since then, I've been going uh, back and forth to China working as an entertainment consultant. And when the teen virus started, I was in China from December 27th to January 25th uh, on business when it, when it started. And it, the same thing happened there. It started out slow and then progressed a little bit at a time. Um, so it was, it was pretty startling to us that were there uh, about, you know, could we get out, how we were going to deal with it. Um, so that's sort of the beginning. And when I think during the time that I called you. So uh, if you're just joining us, Michael Craig Enoch is our guest today. Michael, a, a longtime business executive with deep ties in China, does a lot of business in China, was on the ground there 
when coronavirus really broke out uh, from Wuhan province. Um, for folks who have never been to that country, it's big. It's very spread out. So you were in Shanghai, I, I take it. How far is that from Wuhan? And secondarily, how did the word come out? I mean, is this something that they talked about readily in Chinese media? Because I know the government really has the thumb on the media there. Yeah, they started talking about it at the beginning of January. And you can think of China uh, in comparison to the United States. It's almost the same size. Um, uh, obviously, it's got five times the population, 1.5 uh, billion people, and we have 300 million in about the same space. Where we have 50 states, they have 25 provinces. Wuhan is in Ubei province, which is in the very center of the country. You would think of it as uh, where Illinois, Missouri, you know, that Tennessee, that kind of area. Uh, Shanghai would be probably right where Washington, D.C. is. Beijing is similar to where New York is. Um, Hong Kong is probably similar to where Miami is. So um, in China, instead of how we do here where we fly everywhere we drive, they have an incredible high-speed train network that runs everywhere. So on the train from Shanghai to Wuhan is about uh, three and a half hours, four hours. Uh, If you were to drive it, it would be maybe 20 hours, 15 hours. They don't really have the interstate system that we have because their travels kind of migrated through the train system. And so they have the most sophisticated train system in the world. Um, That's sort of where my story kind of starts with with the virus is that I had decided to take the high-speed train from Shanghai to Hong Kong, and that's a 10, 11-hour train ride, and you're four people in a car. And so I was in a car for 10 hours. Uh, in a sleeper car with a family, and then I was in Macau for three or four days. And while I was in Macau, there was no visitation. This was on June, or I'm sorry, January 25th. Um, I'm sorry, it was on January 20th. Uh, and by that time, they were talking about it, and there was discussions about what was going on in Wuhan, but it was very small. People were still not really protecting themselves because it was just sort of the beginning. When uh, when I was there working with you several years ago, I noticed that in Shanghai, uh, even at that time, there was, a, I don't know if you remember this, there was a, a serious air pollution issue. The smog was incredibly thick during the time I was there. And, and people wore face masks even then. So it's surprising to me to hear you say that, that they weren't wearing them uh, with this happening. Did, did that have anything to do with the fact that in Chinese media, they sort of tamped down the story or tell me about uh, why you think that was. Well, there's a history of wearing masks. So when I say nobody was wearing masks, what I actually was saying is probably a quarter of the people were wearing masks. That's very common in China always uh, for okay. a couple of reasons. One, one because of SARS that happened many years ago that started people wearing masks and then people obviously wear them uh, because of air pollution And then a lot of people are on subways and different things. And so, you know, they they wear masks for that reason. So it was just sort of the starting of it. Um, When I got, when I took this train ride, when I got back, I was gone into Macau for two or three days. When I got back to Shanghai, I was sick. I had had a really, really bad cold, I thought. And I ended up going to the western wing of a Chinese hospital. Most most major hospitals have a Western wing where they speak English 
to treat foreigners. So I went to that hospital that I've been going to on and off for four or five years that I've been in China, and they uh, said I had an upper respiratory infection, but there were no tests at that time. And I had a deep cough, a, uh, a, uh, a headache, sinus run. Um, so I wasn't supposed to leave China until late February, and I decided that I was leaving. So um, I changed my plane flights, and on the 25th, I uh, decided to leave. I got a flight, and because I changed my flight, I had to take a long, involved flight from uh, Shanghai to uh, Taipei to Seattle to New York and then to Columbus, Ohio. So when I got to Taipei, the first stop, there were uh, uh, police officers at customs, and they were screening everybody, and they were giving you a form to fill out under penalty of law if you lied on it, asking you if you'd been sick. So I said, yeah, I had been in sick in the hospital. So they pulled me out of the line and put me in a waiting room, and they took your temperature, and I had a temperature. And they were going to uh, hold me. And then when I discussed with them that I was going to the United States, not staying in Taipei, and I had a letter from the Chinese doctor in Shanghai, they let me leave. So I got back on the plane, and 20 hours later I got to Columbus, and then I was really sick. So I ended up going to uh, Ohio State Medical Center, checking myself in there at the uh, emergency room, and they, they kept me, and I was there four or five days. And at that time, on January 25th, there were no tests. Uh, the CDC had a, a pretty strange protocol. If you were not in Wuhan, you couldn't get tested. And I think the truth was they really didn't have any tests at that moment. And so they, they kept me there four or five days. I had rash all over my body. Uh, herpes breakout in my mouth, um, high temperature. They, everybody, they put me in quarantine, and everybody that came in and out had hazmat suits on. And finally, they decided that I had uh, influenza A and let me go. And I drove to Parkersburg in West Virginia, went to my family doctor, who asked the uh, CDC again to test me, and they said, no, I didn't meet the criteria. And I think people need to understand that that criteria was flawed because this all happened at Chinese New Year. And during Chinese New Year, it's like Christmas in the United States. Uh, almost 100 million people in China travel back to their hometowns for a week to stay with their family. And almost a million people traveled overseas, 300,000 to the United States. And that's really where you can trace our uh, virus problem too to those tourists that came into the United States and they went to New York and LA and different places that, that Chinese people travel in America and that's really what started a problem and by the time that we started to do something about it it was too late because people were already you know spread out across the world and there's not much we could do about it and and it's hard to blame the Chinese government for that also because that you know by the time they figured out what was going on Chinese New Year had already started and people were already leaving and traveling, and they tried to shut it down, but by the time they were able to, they had a mass of tourists that, that had been coming into the country and leaving the country. Michael Enoch is our guest. He is just back from China, uh, got out on one of the last flights out of the country before uh, it was closed down. He's back in, in the, the States now in West Virginia. And you and I talked, Michael, when you were in the hospital in Columbus. That's when you called and you sounded the alarm Looking back on it now, and, and I know you're not a doctor, but you did go through this thing. 
What are the chances in your mind that you had COVID-19? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I, I was most concerned that they weren't able to test me because of this CDC uh, protocols. And we, you know, we're not in the medical field, but, the, you know, the way the medical field operates is off of protocols that are sent down from the CDC uh, all over the country on how they should react to patients. And so they were given a set of rules and guidelines that they had to go by. And when they test people nationally, they have to go through their local health department. The health department contacts the CDC, and then they decide what the protocol, the existing protocol is and how they should treat the patient. So at that time, they just, you know, they were a little bit behind the curve and didn't, I think, really realize what was going on. And, um, and, and at the time, there weren't a lot of tests. In, in fact, in China, they had so few tests at the beginning that they were using doctors' opinions and using that as a way to diagnose people because they, they didn't have enough tests either, although later they imported te- tests from Roach from Switzerland and started testing everybody. And now what they actually do in China, they have a, an app called WeChat. It's like our Facebook, and it's got a COVID-19 section on it, and if you're a Chinese citizen, you have to enter all your information there, enter your results of your test, whether you've been to the hospital, all of those things, and then you have to use that to be able to get in and out of places. Um, and the same thing for foreigners. Now, all the foreigners are shut down, but there are a lot of foreigners that work there. So on your passport, you have a green stamp that allows you to be able to get in and out of places. Uh, they are now starting to open back up, but they are very – uh, they are using this app as a way to track people that have the virus. Uh, in our in our country, it's difficult to do that because of our right to privacy laws, and um, it's difficult. We we you know there is surveillance, but we use it for terrorism and foreigners, etc. They are using it controversially, actually, uh, on their own citizens as a way to track the virus. So in America, that would be difficult for us to accept. I think. Michael Enoch is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, powered by SpeakerMatch.com. Michael, an international businessman who spends lots of time in China, was there right before uh, they stopped flights back to this country. Michael says that, in fact, uh, even though uh, the president says, look, we shut it down quickly, uh, it was too late. The Chinese New Year had already happened, and over 300,000 Chinese citizens had come here uh, to the United States by that time to visit relatives during the holiday. Uh, Michael, there's, there's lots of, I think, misinformation and things that people just don't know because most of us don't travel as extensively to the Far East as you do. And, and one of the things that has been batted around here is this, this notion of this all comes from a bat. And it's because these people in Wuhan, you know, they, they eat uh, bats and other strange things. What can you tell me about where you think this came from? And, and of course, one of the other uh, stories that's circulating around is, oh, this was, you know, a chemical weapon that was done intentionally and, and on and on and on. I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but you've been in the country. So what say you to all of these these suppositions that are out there? Well, they have a dark web just like we have, and you have people on the dark web that spread all kinds of rumors and conspiracy theories, and that's how they live their life. and. I don't really believe in that stuff at all. I think it's people sitting in dark rooms, you know, trying to, um, in, you know, entertain themselves. But um, it, 
if you listen to scientists all over the world, there's a history, you know, of these things happening. I mean, the Dark Ages, we had, you know, the, the Black Plague on and on up to, you know, 1917, the Great Flu, and on and on. So these these things happen, and how, how they're transferred and how it jumps to people normally is through, you know, animals. In this particular case, they thought it was the bat that had bit a pangolin lizard uh, in a, one of those mark, those tickets, uh, but they don't know that for a fact. And if you continue to read it, uh, it, it will take a long time for them to try to track this thing down. That's what these scientists do. You know, in China, they claim that there was a, there was a um, international Olympics uh, for, uh, for military in Wuhan about a month and a half before this. And the United States Army team was there. They claimed that the United States Army was there and released it. In America, we claim that the Chinese were uh, experimenting at a, uh, a sensitive uh, spot that they have in, in Wuhan. They have a, a lab there, and that it got released from there. And I, I don't really believe in either one of these things. I think that there's a scientific explanation for it, and they'll eventually find it. And they, they really need to do that research and get it because they're trying to get a vaccine, obviously, which is – Again, most people need to understand this is not going to happen in two weeks. It's going to take six months to a year. Then you've got to get somebody to make the vaccine and distribute it and give it to people. And vaccines are only 40 to 50 percent effective anyway. So we're in for a long haul. And I think people need to think that, you know, in three weeks this is over and we can go do what we want. This is going to take a while to ramp back up. The economy is going to take a while to ramp back up. And I think by watching what's going on in China right now, we can take some some uh, notes from them and, and learn some things about what's happening and not happening correctly there and, and do things well here. I noticed when I was there visiting with you several years ago that um, it, it seems to be a cultural thing that, that most men in that country that I encountered um, were still smokers. There was It seemed to be, anecdotally, a much higher percentage of smokers in, in China than, than in the States. And I, you know, I noticed that as we went into restaurants and, and nightclubs where that's been verboten here for several years now. Uh, so it really stood out to me. How much of that has played into the fact that it just ripped through that country that, that you have, uh, you know, lots of men who have respiratory issues because they're smokers. Uh, that is absolutely true. Um, you know, where smoking has dropped off here, and I don't know the percentages in the United States. I imagine it's 20% maybe. In China, it might be 60 or 70%. Uh, they have finally banned it. Uh, when you and I were there together, they, you know, allowed people to smoke everywhere. They now have banned it indoors like we have and have started to, to tighten down on it. But it, it's still a very much higher percentage in uh, cigarette companies when they weren't allowed to advertise anymore in the United States and it started dropping it off. They went into Asia in mass, and all the Asian countries are like that. But it, that's starting to change now. The government has uh, clamped down on it and pollution. There's actually an app on your phone you keep about when pollution time, when you should wear a mask. Um, and one of the reasons is they still burn uh, coal and have large factories. A lot of those things in the United States we've shut down. Um, thank God for the EPA. But... Um, yeah, I think that that had a lot to do with this. Obviously, if you watch the statistics, 75, 80% of the people that are dying from this are 70 years old or older, and they have pre-existing conditions. 
cancer, diabetes, uh, lung issues, heart issues. Um, and that's really an issue here in West Virginia. We have a lot of people that have black lung and other issues here that are at risk. And that's why people really need to be particularly cautious about being other around others right now uh, because of that. You mentioned something that I didn't know, and, and that was uh, about the population density in China. And, and, you know, I think anecdotally we all realize that it's a very crowded country, but the, the fact that they have three times the amount of people and roughly the same land mass that the United States has, how much difference do you think that makes? And, and I guess where I'm going with this is there are lots of states, Utah being one that I used to live in, you get outside the uh, Salt Lake Ogden Provo area, it's very sparsely populated. Wyoming is another where they do not have stay-at-home orders now. Is population density really where this is going to hit? Or in in your opinion, in your background in China, is it, uh, you know, that hotspots can pop up even in small remote villages and cause just as much trouble? I think both are true, but I think the first thing you said is probably the most likely in that, and you can see it from New York. You know, in America, we don't have very many of those cities that are densely packed like that. And we also, you know, work downtown and drive in from the suburbs. And in China, they work and live in the same area. Shanghai is a city uh, the size of New York, but with 25 million people instead of 9 or 10 million people. And they're all in 50-story buildings. Uh, tightly packed around each other. So that is a a big deal. Uh, And I think you can see it in America, how it happens. Although I think New Orleans is one that interests me the most. For some peculiar reason, they went ahead and had Mardi Gras and infected the whole city. And those are the things that I think that happened in the United States at the beginning is we didn't understand this and take it as seriously as we should. And we didn't shut down events and things as quickly as we could have. And, you know, you got to give Adam Silver from the NBA and some of the other people in that industry some credit for, for kind of leading the charge and being brave enough to step out. I mean, that's costing the NBA millions and millions of dollars, and they were a leader. So I think it's, we all need to be aware of it and be serious about it. I mean, I'm in the park right now, and uh, there are three or four people that have masks on and no one else. And um, my local grocery store probably scares me more than any other place. When I go in the grocery store, I got a mask and gloves on, and uh, I I feel for the people that have to work in that industry and and thank them for doing it. They're heroes, just like the people in the hospitals and trying to keep things going. Michael Enoch, our guest today, and in in the last couple of minutes on this, I want to ask you about the fact that, that you really did sound the alarm and, and you crystal balled this a little bit. You said to me when you were in that hospital room in Columbus, Ohio, right after landing, uh, when you got back in the United States after that horrible 20-hour flight out of Shanghai, that, that you thought this could be a real thing here. And, you know, many people uh, downplayed that, uh, up to and including the president and, and many of our elected officials. And in the interest of full disclosure, so did I. I, I would never have imagined when you and I talked that last week in January that, you know, two months later I'd be doing a podcast from my home and it would not have been able to get into my office for the last three and a half weeks. What was it about what you saw over there that made you think this could actually happen in the U S of a, I have a picture of my phone of walking down the street that I was living on in China, which normally had literally thousands and thousands of people on it, and there was not a single person on the street anywhere. The, you know, the government 
immediately, as soon as they could, shut Wuhan down and then shut all the schools down and made people stay in their homes. They made you stay inside. You couldn't have guests over your house. You had to have food delivered. Uh, the only thing that was open is grocery stores and pharmacies. Um, and I, it, when that happened and I got sick and went to the hospital and saw the hospital full of people, I said, That's, I'm out of here. You know, I immediately got knew something was happening and it was time to go home. And when I got here and saw that I walked into Seattle and not one person asked me a question, gave me a form to fill out, uh, took my temperature. I thought, wow, we're not getting this. You know, we're behind the curve. Um, And I understand the government was struggling at that time. They were getting all kinds of different advice. They were trying to keep the best economy we've ever had going, but at the same time protect people. And, you know, who knew how long this was going to last? And so, you know, I'm a little upset with the government for not moving as quickly as they could, but I also understand how in the beginning it was very difficult for them to gear up uh, and, and move forward. Hey, Michael, you're in the entertainment business, and as you mentioned, you for several years ran the uh, Mercedes-Benz Arena, which is somewhat like the Staples Center in Los Angeles or Madison Square Garden in New York. It's the big centerpiece arena there in Shanghai. As a guy who's in the entertainment business and has done it at pretty high levels for a long time in Las Vegas and Atlanta and, and Shanghai and Macau, what do you see, if you uh, look at the tea leaves, in terms of, of that business, of so people coming together for large events, concerts, sporting events in the future? Is it going to be when this is over, the floodgates will open and everybody will want to be together again? Do you think a lot of folks will be very hesitant and it will take a long time for that industry to rebound? What do you see happening with with, uh, large events? Well, there's an organization called the IADM, it's International Association of Venue Managers, and I know they've been talking to the government in China. I know they've been talking to the government here and, and other places about how this starts back up. I know in China recently they opened a couple places and allowed some stuff, and people came out and drove, and it scared them, and they shut them back down again. So I think they don't want that to happen here. I think we're, you know, in the fall before you see serious stuff anywhere. I think college football is a big test about whether it's going to happen or not. And I think you're going to see at the gates where right now they search for weapons and don't bring let you bring alcohol, I think that they're going to be – checking on uh, for temperatures and in china they actually have an app you have to scan the app that you you know that you don't have the virus you they have to take your temperature they have to fill out a form that you were there uh and that's pretty onerous for us uh 80, seat football stadium so they're going to have to develop processes about how they deal with this so that we don't have a relapse and a bounce back because this could end up being like flu it could be something that comes back every year and we're going to have to deal with this. This is the world we live in. Everything has changed. Michael Enoch, uh, businessman from the U.S. who works and spends a lot of time in China, although not now. So I'm assuming you have no idea when your next business trip back to China will be at this point. Well, right now you can't get in. Um, there's 24 countries that cannot travel. They revoke everybody's visas, and you have to reapply. I had a 10-year visa, and I'll have to reapply to get back in, but right now we don't know when that is. And the same thing in the United States. We're not letting people from a list of countries that we have back into the United States either. So all that's going to have to normalize at some point. 
And, you know, when I when I think of Shanghai and on the conversation with you right now, I think about, you know, that's really how I met you uh, and, yes. and Landau. Uh, we were doing an event over there. Uh, there. There are 10 international schools there, and every year we would do an event with them uh, where they would raise money for heart-to-heart charity for uh, indigent Chinese children that need heart surgery. And you guys uh, so graciously agreed to come over and, and do the event with us and mentor those young kids, and we're very appreciative of that. Well, it was our honor, and uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to, to fill in our listeners today about what it's really like over there, what you saw in your own personal experience of being on that train, getting sick, and coming back to the States and sounding the alarm. Michael Enoch, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Michael, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for your time today. I appreciate it very much, and I'd just like for everybody to, to know that we're all in this thing together, and we don't need to divide up into different sides of this. We're in it together, and we need to help each other get through it. boy. I appreciate the comments, and if you'd like to find out more about Michael, we'll post it on the Big Time Talker podcast website. Thank you for listening. Big Time Talker brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com, the United States' largest online speakers bureau, For meeting planners and speakers, visit speakermatch.com. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.